Welcome to this edition of the Million Dollar Mastermind Podcast. This is where we pick the brains of high achievers from all walks of life and get their hard-earned, real-world insights on winning. I'm your host, Larry Wydell. Now, you've got a zillion followers on, uh, you're not Kardashian level, but you're highly followed on Twitter and LinkedIn. I didn't get a chance to go to Instagram, but... uh, or YouTube, you know, we just looked at those two, but you got a lot of people follow you. Why in the world do they follow you? This is just accumulation of people who know you from all of these, all of these years. And uh, why do you think that you're so popular in social media? I think it's my looks. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> as a heavy set, yeah. bald guy in his fifties. Yeah. I mean, I think at different, it's actually a little, it's a little misleading in that the way I look at it is it's several different audiences because it because I would see my posts, my follows go up, you know, when I'm reporting on the financial crisis or I'm reporting on inflation dynamics. For a while at The New Yorker, I was very much reporting on Trump's business and had a lot of I broke some stories there that got a lot of attention. And then so but I've noticed like when my book came out, it was actually harder than I thought to use that audience because I don't know how many of them are. I think it's overlapping or distinct audiences yeah. in a lot of cases. I've sort of gotten off Twitter. I just find it it's become quite toxic. I yeah. think I mean, that's not an original thing to say, but I'm fairly active on LinkedIn and um, where I'm much more just. And these days, my my life is I, I made a decision. So when I moved to Vermont. And then my company imploded. Actually, this might be interesting. I mean, so when I was running the company with Sony, the idea, and it's a model they've done many times with others, was I, Sony gives the money, I give the know-how, we build a company together, and then in about five years, Sony buys it from me. And we would do all these estimates and of how big the company would be. And sort of the low end was I would get $10 million the likely end was I would get a hundred million and it felt like a billion wasn't impossible when we would do our numbers based on our theory of what was happening and the growth of the podcast industry. And I sort of had in my head, this is another big mistake. Well, worst case scenario, if all I do is just follow the trend, I'm going to get rich. Like if I don't even beat the trend, I can get rich. And so I sort of in my head was like a guy who's about to be super rich. And my wife was actually upset about it because she's like, every super rich kid I've ever met is a loser and right. I don't want our son to be a loser. So she actually didn't, wasn't sure she wanted me to get super rich. And then when the company imploded and there was, I mean, I don't want to show off, but I think I made a dollar in the sale of <laughs> the company back to Sony. <laughs> Suddenly I'm in Vermont. I've lost this company. And I was like, oh, and I'm not going to be rich. But I was like, well, what? What was I going to do if I was rich? And what I was going to do is there were some writing projects I wanted to do. There were some really specific things that I wanted to do with the financial freedom. And I was like, well, why don't I just do that? Why don't I just live as if I'm rich and figure out the money side? And so that's mostly worked. I mean, that's pretty much worked since I've been up here is I do, you know, some consulting and some coaching with business leaders. And then I do you know, a bunch of cool, fun writing projects, I've worked on some movie projects. So that's sort of my new way of living. Is that where Masterful, you know, it says you're currently CEO of Masterful Storytelling? Yeah. And so basically, 
I do two things. I work with companies on, I mean, it's <laughs> frankly, I needed myself when I was running my company. It, it's, I call it a strategic story. How does a company really nail who they are? What makes them distinct? Then who needs to know that they're distinct? And then how do we tell those people? So it's, which can get pretty deep, I find, with companies. I mean, I told one story of, you know, my company didn't have a core story because I was going through some, essentially, a personal emotional, which is not uncommon. I've met other CEOs. Sometimes you have a condition where there's a difference of opinion at the top leadership and they're not willing to sort it out. And so there's an incoherence of story. Sometimes they have a great story. They just aren't very good at telling it. So they, right. it's very vague or it's very, so that work, I really enjoy that work. And I think, you know, it's something I'm pretty good at. So I've done big projects with like, I did something with Salesforce, something with LinkedIn, something with Apple, but mostly I work with like, I don't know, 10 to $100 million a year companies, often private equity backed, where they're in some kind of transition. They, they were just bought by private equity or they're looking for an exit or there's a leadership change. And so I find that work really satisfying. And then I also do personal coaching with business leaders on their own. You'd be very good at that. Maybe you do that. I don't know. But it, I mean, it's not unlike this conversation. It's sort of right. getting them to share to kind of figure out who am I? What do I stand for? I do find a lot of a lot of men, although women too, especially late 40s, 50s, into 60s, there's like a real period of like, I've been on this train and wait, what do I stand for? What do right. I believe in? You know, I've just been pursuing career success. So that's really fun. And then I have a bunch of creative projects that are great. I'm working on a book about ancient Mesopotamia, and it happens to be a fascination of mine. And I'm working with this friend of mine who teaches at Harvard, wow. and that's super fun. You're going back to uh, your trip to... Uh, to Iraq. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I got to visit a bunch of sites in Iraq, and I was like, this is cool. Like, this is where civilization began. It's yeah. amazing how much civilization has been centered there. It's really incredible. And yeah. it's 130 degrees. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's been no air conditioning. <laughs> yeah. Until maybe some recently. It's just like, how did these people live? Yeah, it was brutal. It's not just Las Vegas that's hot. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> you got a dark country. That actually is part of the theory of why civilization began there, because they needed... They needed these massive irrigation programs. Yeah, they needed right. to, it's even worse than you described because it's hot. It's like no one should live there. It's unbearable. Right. But then, and it doesn't rain almost ever, but when it does rain, it suddenly floods yeah. and it destroys <laughs> everything. So it was these really complicated environmental conditions that forced a kind of partnership that eventually led to cities and states and empires. And Well, I'll keep my eye out for that book because it does sound, sounds like there's a lot of interesting uh, subject matter there. As you look at companies, and you have looked at companies for a long time, behind the companies are people. <laughs> yeah. And if they, you know, depending on their experience level, depending on their mental balance there, it all comes back to the leader, doesn't it? It all comes back to the leader. And it, it is so, I don't mean People get annoyed when you talk about like, oh, the poor CEO. And I don't mean it that way, but I mean, it can be so lonely because, you know, I watched it at my like $5 million a year, 25 employee company. I can't imagine what it's like at a much bigger one. Every interaction you have is not a real interaction. Right. 
whether it's your employees or your investors or your customers, people are shaping how they talk to you. And so I think, and you have to actively, nobody's coming up to you and saying, hey, you're screwing up. This is bad. Like my friend even, he kind of hinted at it, but he didn't come out and say it. And because they have some other agenda. And so you have to like, you both have to be a great leader and you have to constantly monitor your leadership and monitor what am I doing wrong? How does, what am I missing? And then you have to be a model. You have to, like, you're kind of on stage, but then you also have to be true to yourself if you just fake it completely or just, so I think it's a really, a great leader is sort of a miracle. I think, you know, there's things like Vistage and YPO and EO and these groups that I think can be incredibly helpful where you can just meet with peers who don't aren't in your chain of command, but can right. just share their experiences. Your show seems like a really good example of being able to learn from other leaders. But yeah, I think there's kind of a leadership crisis in corporate America, yeah. in business right now, as well as politically, I think. You can actually extend that out. It's like in every area of life, there's a leadership crisis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's tricky being a leader because you might think, oh, I got to be, I got to tell everyone what to do. And that's not going to work for 26-year-olds. But what I did isn't going to work either, is I'll let them tell me what to do. It's right. how do I become better at persuading? How do I become better at guiding, yeah. at exciting people about a vision? Yeah. And how do I become better at listening to them intelligently? So it's not you get to do whatever you want, but here's our big goal. Right. That can't change. But I'm going to really be open to my blind spots. I'm going to be open to fresh ideas, exciting ideas. Yeah, it's a lot of it has to do with your, well, part of it, let's just say, when you've got new people and they're bright and this, that, and the other, they're full of themselves, is give them areas where they can, I used to say, get them in a position where they can find out how stupid they really are as fast as possible. Yeah, yeah. So when we have a meeting, they'll pay attention. (laughs) Yeah, that is a very good point. And also allowing for failure. Like on the list of problems at NPR, it's the most risk-averse culture I've ever been a part of. And, you know, they'd rather not try anything yeah. If it means they never have to fail. So you want good failure. You want learning failure. You want failure that's, that's what we testing learned. the envelope. Yeah. But you don't want rampant failure. You don't want just people run around. Yeah. Yeah. You got to minimize the impact. It's kind of like you can't, you know, you want to give a two-year-old freedom to run around the yard, but you don't want to give him freedom to run around on the street. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> right. There right. has to be boundaries. <laughs> right. He doesn't get the AK-47 until yeah. he's four or five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As my as my brother said, as he shot my sister in the ear with his BB gun, and we were driving down the road one day, he said, well, I was aiming at the bird. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Can she hear? Did that cause permanent damage? I don't think we let the six-year-old have the BB gun in the backseat of the car. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. man. This has been a lot of fun, Adam. Thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you some more down the road to see what kind of adventures you get yourself into. Yeah, this was a blast. Thank you. And have some fun talking about that. But can you, I like to offer our guests a chance to have the final word. But it's like, you kind of wonder at the end of talking this much, is there anything left to say? But somehow people of accomplishment always have something on their mind that they feel like uh, they can pass on or will be useful to uh, people coming up and uh, who want to do great things and are 
are willing to try. And so what would you say? Well, I'll tell you what is on my mind these days. It's, I have a buddy, Scott Stern, who teaches entrepreneurship at MIT, and he's a big data guy. And he said, when people study what makes a business leader successful, the thing that comes up again and again, the most consistent is that they give time for reflection, time alone with themselves for reflection. And that is something I've become increasingly obsessed with in my life and with the life of my clients. When I look back at my life, that you're always on some kind of race to something. And I like that. I like being in races. I like having goals. But having some method, whether it's a coach or meditation or church or whatever it is, or a, a friend you can go for long walks on or go walk, going for walks alone, having really honoring and taking that time, and I think an hour a week is probably a minimum, of just what do I want? What is working? What is, yeah. I'm increasingly thinking that is a major, major requirement for both leadership, but also in, in career success, but also just a happy life. Well, you know, I don't know if you're, most high achievers are have a attention deficit to some degree. I do have ADHD. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is that for people like us, me anyway, when you tell me just sit and meditate, on a chair, it's like, I'm going to go crazy. But what saves the day for me is journaling. You know, if I've... Yeah, journaling's a fabulous. If yeah. I can write yeah. things down, and then if I have a schedule, you know, I break it down to Monday through Sunday. Every day, I've got a whole list of things to kind of go through and uh, keeps me on track. But otherwise, I think I would just sitting and staring at the wall. You know you need to do it, but the challenge for all of us is to take that insight that you gave and find a way that works for you, the where you can do it regularly. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm not saying any particular, like I, right. there are people who do it through prayer and religious. There's people who just have a buddy they go biking with and right. they just, 90% of what they talk about is just nonsense, but it's just that honest moment. I will tell you, I have no gain in this. This isn't me selling something, but there is an app called Positive Intelligence that it's a little pricey, but it's this guy who at Stanford kind of took meditation and took it into like these two minute little chunks throughout your day that I found really helpful. Cause yes, I, I mean, we could talk about that for days, but I was diagnosed with ADHD pretty old. Cause when I was a kid, it wasn't really a thing. And so I do struggle with that, but an hour a week could be eight or whatever it would be. I'm doing the math. It could right. be 32 minute sessions a week. It doesn't have to be right. sitting for an hour at lighting incense and, praying to the gods or something. It could be whatever works for you. Absolutely. That's positive intelligence? Yeah, positive intelligence. I think it's positiveintelligence.org. I found that pretty easily on the app. Or .com, .com. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, hey, Adam, thanks so much. This has been great. And I look forward to uh, talking to you down the road. Thanks for taking the time and a, a busy Christmas week. Yeah, thank you. This has been an absolute joy. I really hope we talk again. All right. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Million Dollar Mastermind. If you felt there were any valuable takeaways from this episode, please take a minute and leave us a five-star review. Your feedback is important and really helps us get the word out to a wider audience. Remember, we have a valuable webinar that is absolutely free. Register for it right now at whitealamwinning.com. Thanks for listening.